Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll turn again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Reading verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word again that you would nourish us, that you would even give us a longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Father, that you would would strengthen us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us. Father, to walk in a manner worthy of our great Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loves his bride, the church. And we should also love his bride, the church. And there's a hymn that works out those themes. There's a hymn... um, that I love to sing. It's called, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. We've sung it before. But listen to these words and think about the church. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. We should all be able to sing such a hymn about the church with with a true affection, a true love in our hearts, but especially those men called to serve in the offices of the church. They should be able to sing that hymn and glow with faith and be thankful to God uh, for the church. Church officers, it, it's kind of silly to say and simple, but church officers have to love the church. Uh, They must understand that she is the true family, that she is the renewed family of God, of God's elect. 
Uh, They must pray for her. They must live for her. They must serve her. And they must, as the, the hymn says, they must prize her heavenly ways. Rejoicing in communion, rejoicing in her worship, rejoicing in her service. And it's so easy to be cynical about the church, isn't it? So easy to be cynical about the church because we see abuses in the church. We see um, a departure from the word of God in the church. And so it's easy for us to come into what might be the most orthodox church and begin critiquing it down to the floor and her carpet. Some find loving the church hard because of, of past hurts in the church. Some find this hard. Some find loving the church hard because of past your own past sins that have strained your relationships with people in the church. Some find it hard because your priorities are simply set on other things. And the church doesn't have a part of your affection. Some find it hard because you've been taught poorly about the place and the role of the church in the world. Right? Though the church is the apple of God's eye, for you it is an afterthought. Or perhaps just an unnecessary but kind of nice addendum to your family union. Or simply... um, a distraction from what you consider to be true religion. Um, I give thanks to God that the the very first thing I was taught by those who loved me and dis- discipled me in the faith was this, be committed to the body of Christ. Be committed to the church. Set your affections on her and her people. Be a churchman who understands and values the God-given role of the church being the pillar and, and foundation of the truth. In this world, God has placed the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. That deep commitment and understanding of the role of the church, it's fundamental to the work of the elders and deacons. If your affection runs deeper for something else, I would say even for your own family, don't become an officer in the church. Some of you think I'm crazy in saying that. If your wife is unwilling for you to split your affections to be a father to the church, don't become an officer in the church. If you will make it a competition for him between your family and the church, you disqualify your husband. If your commitment to the church is partial, don't become a church officer. If uh, Michael, Michael Foster shared this challenge uh, from Charles Spurgeon in this week's elder board meeting, and it got me thinking about our church and those in her, which is what we do at elder board meetings, right? We think about our church and the people in her, and we talk about you. That's what we're called to do to keep watch over souls, not just generically, but specific sheep in the flock. But Charles Spurgeon said this, and it got me thinking, thinking about my own practices, but thinking about other people's practices as well. 
Whenever people come to despise weeknight services, okay, so Wednesdays, be sure of it, farewell to the vital power of godliness, he says. For weeknight services are very, very much the stamp of the man. Any hypocrite will come on a Sunday, but a man does need to take some interest in religious services to be found mingling with the people of God in a prayer meeting. He's got he's to want to be together with the brothers and sisters in the church. Now that's convicting. It's convicting to me. It's hard words. I believe what he said. You measure a man by whether he comes to evening services. You measure a man by whether he comes to deacon's work days. You measure a man by whether he comes to Wednesday night services. That's the measure of a man, he says, the stamp of the man. Part of the way we are to imitate and honor Jesus by loving what he love, loves and by loving our brethren in the church. A churchman lives and breathes the church because he loves his brothers and sisters, because he knows the sweetness of the society of the church. And because he knows his own weakness and he needs her ministries, even the seemingly superfluous ones. Because because he fears God, he honors his institutions and his delegated authorities, because he knows himself, right, and needs the accountability of other men in the church, because he is to love what God loves. God loves his bride. So we return to this passage that marks out qualifications for churchmen, churchmen who are called to love what God loves. We covered the first bunch last week and take up the last attribute in the second verse today. We learn that the overseer is to be able to teach. To be able to teach. In a parallel passage in in Titus 1 about the qualifications for elder, that ability is spelled out a little more. It gets more, um, more words. Notice that it doesn't, it doesn't say he must be eloquent or a star orator. The Apostle Paul was not Apollos. Right? What it says is this. He must, in Titus 1, it says this. He must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. Okay, so he must hold fast to the word of God. He must cling to it. He must know the word of God. He must study it. He must be committed there, first of all, with the result that he'll be able to exhort and refute. He'll be able to correct and train, right? And so, to exhort... um, means to to call for or to encourage in. To encourage in. So this teaching in Titus 1 would mean the overseer must be able to encourage people through the word of God or in biblical teaching. 
To refute means to correct, to point out errors of those who contradict what the Bible teaches, either in doctrine or in practice. You see how critical it is, therefore, to know what God teaches in his word. That is the unwavering standard. We do not add the words of man, the views of man, the whims and fads of man to that standard. The standard is the inerrant and infallible word written. And so the overseer must know that word written and have an ability to communicate it to others so that they will know what is right and what is wrong. And so that they will be encouraged and corrected. Um, It's very easy to exhort with the standard being our intuitions and emotions. And that's often what we do. Sometimes our intuition is the exercise of discernment, and sometimes our emotions compel us to act, but the standard by which we measure ourselves up and the elders measure the flock is not intuitions. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So often I chew and chew and chew on a situation and come up with 45 theories, some of which are just a product of my pride. And I have to stop myself and say, what does the Word of God say? How does the Word of God teach? What does the Word of God say in this situation? How does it apply? What scripture will bring clarity, help, or necessary rebuke in this pastoral care situation? What scripture would encourage so-and-so who is chronically ill and anxious or depressed. Now, our denomination's Book of Church Order breaks the office of elder down into two orders, the ruling elder and the teaching elder. Does this mean that we don't have an expectation that ruling elders should teach or be able to teach? Well, no, it does not. But it does properly acknowledge that there will be, there will be some elders, particularly those called into vocational ministry, who will have the bulk of the teaching. Hence, they're called teaching elders. It's very creative, those Presbyterians. Is, the, is it a superfluous distinction? No, it's not. Look at 1 Timothy 5.17. The scripture acknowledges this very distinction, teaching and ruling elders. The Apostle Paul writes, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay, more literally, the end of the passage would read, those who toil or grow weary in word and in instruction. It's clear that there will be those who bear the weight of preaching and teaching and those who bear the weight of ruling and managing. Okay, inevitably, ruling and managing involves teaching. It, it has to You have to, in ruling, be able to teach. But it may not be from the pulpit. It may be through letters, like the Apostle Paul and Peter wrote. It may be in counseling. It may be in visitations. It may be in lunch meetings. It may be in phone calls. It may be in exhortations in the hallway. Um, We cannot be monolithic about an ability to teach. Many elders thrive in one-on-one conversations Right and exhortations. Others like to get in front of people and shout. And the truth is reflected in our BCO again. The elders jointly have the government and spiritual oversight of the church, including teaching. Only those elders, only those elders, 
who are specially gifted, called, and trained by God to preach may serve as teaching elders. Okay, so there's, there's the implicit extra training, extra, extra gifting for that particular duty. There's a difference in examinations. The examination for ruling elder is much less thorough than the examination for a teaching elder, rightfully so, because the bulk of the teaching is done by, te- by teaching elders. I got examined before 42 pastors who know the Bible better than me. Right? You get examined before a session. The elders get examined. Ruling elders get examined before a session, and not in all the areas that the teaching elder is examined in. Yet it's undeniably true that if a man lacks an ability to exhort, to refute, whether because he's pugnacious or he's pusillanimous, wimpy, that's what that word means, he's not qualified to be an elder. Um, But remember that teaching takes many forms. I'll also say that this word that we have translated as ability to teach or able to teach, didacticos, could also mean teachable, which puts an entirely different spin on this qualification, doesn't it? The, the unteachable man, the man who is, who is proudly set on his ways and will not yield, particularly on superficial things that he deems to be gospel issues, that man is in for a very hard eldership. I remember in one elder board meeting in my first year here where an elder was asked if he would allow a man to drink in moderation. He was a teetotaler. His response was that he would only submit to the word of God. By which he was saying a few things. That our view was not biblical, which is absurd. And that he had no intent of being taught or submitting to his brethren on this issue and that he intended to be divisive about it. The rebel often says, I submit only to the word of God. This is not a matter, uh, this is not simply a matter of collegial disagreement and ironing, sharpening iron. He was unteachable. The unteachable man is not temperate, he is not gracious. He is for himself and his views. Full stop. That's what he's for. Last thing, in order to be an adequate teacher, one must have learned to be teachable. I think this is a part that, this is growth that every man has to go through. We, we have to repent of our teenage hubris. Right? We have to put behind childish thinking and head toward mature thinking, as the Apostle Paul would put it, to become teachable. Moving on, Scripture teaches us that an overseer must not be addicted to wine. And that's, that's not a good way of putting this in the translation. It's one word in the Greek. He must not be a drunkard is what it says. He must not be a drunkard. The Greek word is a combination of two words and one word, para, which is beside or alongside, and winos, which is wine. So it's, he can't be like the companion of wine. He can't be alongside of wine. 
He, uh, he can't be under the domination of drink. Now, there, there's something that bothers me about the young Reformed men who post pictures of what they are drinking on Facebook. The young men post pictures of what they are drinking. The old men post pictures. You know, the young men post the pictures of the beers. The old men post pictures of the single malts they are drinking. And the women post pictures of the white wine they're drinking. But what they are doing, what they are doing in that is flaunting their freedom. Rubbing their freedom in the noses of the weaker brother. Paul said that he would cease eating meat, not even talking about wine. He would cease eating meat if it caused a younger brother to stumble. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then he says, finally, this is where he says it, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. One of my favorite Babylon Bee article titles, I don't read the articles, it's a satire site, makes a good point. It says, local man's drinking problem still successfully uh, disguised as craft beer hobby. The scriptures do not condemn drinking alcohol. They condemn being a drunkard. They condemn drunkenness. And those who can't drink without being tempted to be drunk should not drink. But there's another danger in flaunting our freedom to drink, even those who drink in moderation, flaunting that freedom. It's to cause a weaker brother to stumble. Do not cause a weaker brother to stumble. Be willing, particularly as an elder, to be discreet, to be wise, to give up strong drink, if necessary, to love others. Remember that the Levites, the, those who operated the temple, were not to drink on duty. And we're to be an example to Israel. Leviticus 10 says, The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as, listen to this, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Think about this. Does your use of strong drink help you maintain that distinction distinction between the holy and the profane? Or does it not? The elder must think about such things, must think on this matter, matter of drink, strong drink, in such terms. Moving on, the overseer must not be pugnacious, which is a great word. As Webster tells us, that word means having a quarrelsome or combative nature. 
Um, in other words, a pugnacious man fights every time and all the time, right? A pugnacious man is the kind of man that would blow up during a conversation about puppies, right? He'd have the firmest convictions on breeds of dogs of anybody around you, and he would fight you to the death to convince you that German shepherds are the best. Synonyms for pugnacious uh, would include blustering, abrasive, even the overused word today of a bully. A pugnacious man is the kind of man that, that um, would not argue even from principle, but would argue just to win the argument. He cannot be wrong. He cannot diminish that others might increase. Um, Does this mean that the elder may not be a fighter? Well, no, but he isn't the kind of man who goes looking for a fight, right? To be a pugnacious, to be, to not be pugnacious does not necessitate being like a a pushover. Um, He fights, the, the overseer must fight or contend only when necessary. Right? Unlike the pugnacious man who will do so everywhere all the time, the pugnacious man also despises the weak and therefore intends to break a bruised reed. Um, for him, the next two attributes listed here as contrast to pugnacious are weakness. They're weaknesses. He is to be gentle. For the, for the macho, gentleness is seen as weakness. He treats no one as if um, he or she is a weaker vessel or as if they are under any affliction. Instead, the, that man places burdens on people like the Pharisees did. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But Jesus, our Savior, whose scripture says was gentle, took away weariness. And and in taking away weariness, what he puts on you is only lightness. Light burdens. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light, not like the heavy burdens of the Pharisees. The gentleness of Jesus led him to promise and accomplish for others rest for their souls. Does your gentleness allow your children to rest? Does your gentleness allow your wife to rest? Does your gentleness allow your employees to rest? Right? Or do you delight in placing heavy burdens on others like King Rehoboam? Right? I'll discipline them with scorpions. Sometimes, well, I, I think it's actually all the time, you can see the fruit of a father's lack of gentleness in the eyes or in the carriage the, of his children. Right? Have you ever looked into the eyes of a young woman who has been sexually abused in her home. 
and seen the weight and the heaviness of having endured such terrible harshness, right? An elder must be gentle to the weak becoming weak. Um, He must do as the apostle writes in Galatians, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The overseer is also to be peaceable in the sense of uncontentious. Um, This is an analog to pugnacious, right? Always looking for a fight. Peaceable means always looking to make peace. He has as his goal what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Now again, I have to make qualifications because we live in an age when, when men have been taught to stand down, have been taught not to fight. We live in an effeminate age. And so people come to a pastor who's engaged in doing battle with the enemies of God and wolves within the congregation, and they say about him, well, he's not a very gentle man. He's not a very peace-loving or peaceable man, you know, like Jesus was. Have you read what Jesus said to the Pharisees? The name's sons of hell. May remind you, have you read of the zeal that consumed Jesus in his father's house? Have you read of the scourge of cords that he made to drive out those robbers who came into his father's house? Have you read that that Jesus is the one who treads the very winepress of the wrath of God? Have you read Psalm 2? Jesus is not gentle and peaceable to all. He makes peace with those whom the Father has given him, and he wages war against all his and our enemies. Right? The overseer who is gentle with the wolf in the midst of the sheep is a terrible shepherd. Right? Conversely, the overseer who is harsh with a widow in distress is a monster. Monster. And so the overseer must be peaceable. I'm going to stop there because the next few will require some time to develop. But let me close with something from Richard Baxter's reform pastor. Um, it's what the men's group is going to be reading. Um, it is, it's one of those books that I would put on a must-read for Christians list. And um, that book, like... Like Michael said before, um, brings conviction. Uh, more than any other, that book will cause you to, other than Scripture, right? I always That's always implied when I'm talking about the books of men, okay? Um, that book, more than any other, will cause you to examine yourself and to think then about the duties of the eldership. And as we think on these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, we can begin to think that The Apostle Paul, even the Holy Spirit, is being a bit too harsh or a bit too idealistic. Well, many people said the same about this book and these lectures, the Reformed Pastor, that it was too harsh. 
Uh, I remember in my seminary class with, um, of all people, Jerem Bars taught pastoral theology. And we went through the, the Reformed pastor. Thankfully, it was on the reading list. I was thrilled. And yet, when we talked about it in class, everybody just moaned and groaned about how harsh it was. And we really never discussed the book. Um, conviction. Self-examination. To, to want to see our sin and root it out is, is the cause. And so, here... Here's how Baxter responds in the early part of the book. Too many who have undertaken the work of the ministry do so obstinately proceed in self-seeking, negligence, pride, and other sins that it is become our necessary duty to admonish them. If we saw that such would reform without admonishment or without reproof, we would gladly forbear the publishing of their faults. But when reproofs themselves prove so ineffectual, that they are more offended at the reproof than at the sin. Let me say that again. When they are more offended at the reproof than at the sin, and had rather that we should cease reproving than that themselves should cease sinning, I think it's time to sharpen the remedy. For what else should we do? To give up our brethren as incurable were cruelty as long as there are further means to be used. Right? And so, so he says, look, the, these qualifications here for every Christian should cause us to reflect and should, for the officer, for those who are candidates for office, should cause us just simply to fear God and bow before him and pray that he would give the grace to follow these commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it cuts us. Lord, forgive us for, the so, many, for so many times when you have sent messengers to us to cut us so that we might be healed in more strength, that we have, we have hated the messenger. Father, we have hated the reproof and loved our sins instead. Lord, I pray as we continue to go through this passage that we would be cut and that you would bring healing by your grace, and that we would be conformed to Jesus Christ, and that you, as a good father, would discipline us for our good, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.